Off we go. Uh, Kevin, what a big week. The Olympic trials in Saskatoon, you were there tough on your son, Kev. Did you have to talk him down? <laughs> yeah, it was a tough week for the boys. They were certainly expecting more, but you know what? That's sports, isn't it? And uh, I think Kark's doing okay. Right on. Uh, we're going to talk about that and a lot more coming up right now on Inside Curling. Last Rock, eighth end, up by two. She got it. I don't think I'm. I don't think I'm white. I don't think you are either. Oh, oh. it's clean. Oh, don't oh. kill it, Ben. Don't kill it. Don't kill it. Line's really good. Line's good. Right on the button, guys. Right Last here. stone for Kevin Martin. They want it on the button. The sweepers are watching it. Fans are on their feet. Kevin Martin goes out as a champion. Cuts him to one. He will win his final Grand Slam, taking the Players' Championship. Talk about putting an exclamation mark at the end of a career. All he had to do was cut him down. Kevin Martin can celebrate. He is a champion. Okay, fellas, here's what's on the show today. Uh, our regular se- segments, what's happening around the curling world. The Canadian trials, of course, ended this past weekend. Uh, we're going to have an extensive look at that. The European Championships also concluded in Lillehammer, Norway. Uh, and we're going to check in on that. An item came out this week with Canada's medal predictions for the Games in Beijing. And it may not be what you think. The Canadian Curling Club Championships is being held this week at the Ottawa Hunt Club. Uh, and we're going to take a look at that. Hot rock topics. The U.S. Curling Trials played a round robin where the top two teams qualified for the playoff, which was a best of three. We don't see it very often. Should Curling Canada be looking at a similar approach? In our mailbag segment, uh, we've got a lot of interesting comments, so we've sorted out a couple of those, and hopefully we can get to both of them. And in the house, Joan McCusker. I love Joan. Uh, I've known her a long time, and uh, and she's fantastic. So... We're going to speak to her shortly. Story time. Kev, Warren's going back in history. He's going to give us some <laughs> very interesting things about the tuck delivery uh, and what it was like when, when he played uh, and where it is now. So thanks, everyone, uh, for the emails. Keep them coming. If you want to consider reading the email, uh, don't make them too long, okay? Insidecurling at gmail.com. What's happening around the curling world is brought to you by Sports Interaction, providing competitive odds on all sports. Sports Interaction is Canada's odds maker. You got to be 19 to play. And I should have, I said Jennifer Jones was going to win this thing and I didn't bet on it. <laughs> Let's get into it. Kevin, the Canadian trials. What a week it was. High drama. You know what? Yeah. Oh man, that's for sure. But first I tell you what, um, I want to announce something here. It's something that just came across the last few minutes. Um, Winter Universiad 2021 supposedly held in Luzerne uh, will not be taking place. That just happened a few minutes ago. Uh, that's a that's a disaster. It was supposed to start uh, the 30th Winter Universiade uh, was to open December 11th in L- Luzerne, Switzerland, and it will not be Drag. taking place. So that is big uh, news for you know the sport of curling, obviously, and and makes somebody like me wonder, oh boy, here we go again. What's next? So mm-hmm. I just uh, want to make sure everybody knew that. Um, like I say, we we tape on. Uh, uh, the day before so obviously uh, but this just came across my phone just a couple of minutes ago so Warren before I get into the trials uh, what brings to your mind what, what does that cause you to think right away uh, it causes me to get a little worried considering this new variant that has just been released uh, in the last few days wondering if this is maybe the the possible trend of things to come let's hope not but uh, it is a little frightening without question yeah. Hey, let's let's get into the trials uh, um, in Saskatoon. Of course, a fantastic event. Uh, we talked about uh, in the men's and the women's uh, in the last couple of weeks, talking about uh, basically, in, in my opinion, um, it was kind of a battle of big fours in the men's and the women's on the women's side. Flurry Jones, of course, as uh, Jimmy stated last week that, you know, he thought she was going to win. And uh, of course, Carrie Anderson and Rachel Holm and kind of the battle of the big four. And and in the end, of course, uh, Team Flurry and Jones were one and two. What a great game. Came right down to the last inch. And you can definitely feel the pressure on the athletes. You saw Jones have a fairly simple shot or a really simple shot, actually, to win the game in 10. Ended up missing it only getting one, going the extra end, and then 
same thing. There's so much movement in this ice. Tracy Fleury has a fairly makeable shot on her last and crashed the guard. And, you know, it was just so much pressure. And you could see the looks on the, on the athletes' faces. And it, it was extremely entertaining for the crowd and uh, just a just a tremendous battle right to the end. And on the men's side, you know, the big four being, of course, Brad Gushu and Brad Jacobs, both finishing at 7-1 and one records. Team Cooey and uh, Team Botcher and... Team Botcher just came out of the blocks not well at all and uh, just couldn't recover late in the week. Team Cooey played okay, but, you know, there's no way that uh, Kevin would have been happy with that with that week. But ended up getting to the semi and, and uh, being, uh, well, it was a bit of a, it was only a six-end game, I think, in the semi against uh, Team Jacobs. But it was, it was good. You know, one thing I noticed, and Warren and I, we talked about this in the uh, final Jacobs had a pretty easy outturn draw to the eight foot, but elected to try to hit a, play a hit and roll instead. So teams were not liking draw weight, uh, unless you could take like edge of 12 foot, go wide and have it come into the button. That was pretty predictable. But if you ever had to go across center, and that's the, the Jacobs draw I'm talking about is where he had to come around across center and behind the corner guard to the eight foot for a single and on, on Mike. He says, well, I, I don't feel comfortable throwing that draw. So it was, it was a tough surface the whole week. It was very, we talked about it last week on Inside Curling as well. It was just very difficult. And uh, we saw a lot of missed draws that just, I don't think are, are normal. That's for sure. One thing, of course, I've heard lots of and lots of messages, and I appreciate the messages from everybody that's sending them to me. And that was the playoffs uh, being sudden death versus, uh, of course, last week in... Uh, in Omaha, where the U.S. have a best of three. So I'd love to hear everybody's thoughts on this because it's quite, I didn't realize it would cause as much talk as it has. Now, I, I, it's hard to argue, Flurry Jones, even if you played best of three, best of five, best of seven, that there'd be a different outcome. Both of those teams are pretty even. And same with on the men's side, Team Gushu against Jacobs, that's a toss-up. So I don't know if it would matter if you played best of three, five, or seven, but but certainly people are thinking about it. And I guess that's important, Warren, that people are actually uh, uh, thinking about the playoff structure going forward, which is great. We've got, we've got curling fans talking about the playoff structure. Warren? Yeah, I mean, we're going to talk a little bit more about that uh, in a couple of minutes into the show, but I think the thing to look at is on the women's side. The men's side was okay. We had both Gushu and Jacobs with one loss and Cooey in third spot with two, so it's pretty even. But in the women's side, not so much. We had Fleury, who was undefeated going into the finals, and we had Jennifer Jones in second place with three losses, and even more so, Team McCarville, who finished third with four losses. So all of a sudden, you've got... Uh, these teams with three and four losses going up against the one who hasn't lost a game and it's sudden death. So I think it's something to, to reconsider and we'll talk about it here in, in a few moments under another topic. Uh, Kevin, I got a quick question for you. Um, J- Jacobs against Cooey gets two four-enders. They call the thing after six ends. Uh, I thought, well, grind it out, boys. Give it another shot. Maybe you can get a four-ender. You know, but, but they ended the thing really quick. Uh, am I out of touch there, Kev, or would, would you say, well, wait a minute, maybe we can... I don't think you're out of touch, Jimmy. It seems to me there's quite a bit of friction on that team. I don't know where it comes from, but I've been watching, you know, the terrific curlers, obviously, the whole team. But there just seems to be, the chemistry seems to be lacking a bit, and I think that's why the handshakes happen in six. Uh, you're right. Um, most times you'd at least play two more ends, because if you happen right. to pick up, like a three-ender is not out of the question, and stealing a point. So in, in seven, if they grab three, and in eight, you steal one, all of a sudden, you've got a game. Right. Yeah. So I don't know. It just seemed weird to me. It is. It's something that, that in recent years, it's always confused me. In my day when I was playing, I don't care how many points we were up, but man, did I breathe a sigh of release when the other guy stuck out his hand, even if we were up four after eight, because there's so many things can happen. Uh, particularly in today's world, there's picks happening all over the place. There's burn stones. And that other team could be throwing the skip's final rock, maybe looking at three, and it's a routine hit or a routine draw, and something happens to the rocks. So there's always so many things that can happen. So I don't understand. Uh, I know it's it's difficult. It's uh, heart, heart it's heartening when you're down this number of points. But I always think make the other guy throw them to win. Don't just hand it to them. And, and yeah, that's my thoughts. Such a big event. Yeah. yeah. But Warren, don't you think maybe it had more to do with a little bit of the chemistry oh, of the team? Oh yeah. I, I think that was pretty obvious a couple of times in the last couple of days that there was there was some friction there. Well, I'm trying to be diplomatic here. (laughs) (laughs) You know, one other thing I've got to say is um, the uh, Canadian club 
the Everest Curling Club Championships are going on for men's and women's. And I got to make sure I mention that because Brittany Martin, Carrick's wife, uh, is representing Alberta. And it's a 14-team women's event, 14-team men's event, two pools, kind of like they run the Briar and Scotties. They dwindle it down. And they play uh, the semifinal finals on Saturday, Sunday, December 3rd and 4th. So, so that's great. You know, another championship going on. And that's in Ottawa at the Ottawa Hunt Club, which is a great place to curl. I've been there a few times uh, over the years as well. So I wanted to make sure I mentioned that, that the, uh, the Everest Curling Club Championships are on right now, starting today. Uh, okay, whipping along here. So much stuff. And, and yet another Martin is a curler, your daughter-in-law. When does it stop? We're being invaded by Martins. <laughs> Good luck to them. Uh, the European Championships are on this week in Lillehammer, Norway. Warren, what's going on there? Well, that concluded on the weekend, and not too many surprises. I guess I guess a few. On the women's side, the four teams that qualified were from Sweden, Russia, Scotland, and Germany. Not too many surprises there. In the semis, Sweden defeated Russia, and Scotland's Eve Muirhead defeated Germany. In the gold medal game, Muirhead came up with a win over Sweden's Anna Hasselberg 7-4 to to take the gold. And in the bronze medal game, Germany, Daniela Gentsch defeated Kovaleva from Russia 9-6. So the medalists, Scotland, Sweden, and Germany, maybe a little bit of a surprise there is Germany. No sign of Switzerland in the final three, so that might be a little bit of insight to things to come. On the men's side... Four teams making the final playoffs, Sweden, Italy, Scotland, and Norway. In the semifinals, Sweden defeated Italy. Scotland took out Norway. So in the gold medal game, we had guess who, (laughs) guess who from Scotland (laughs) playing guess who from Sweden. And the final score was eight to five for guess who from Scotland. Wow. And in the bronze medal game, Italy defeated Norway. And again, another guy we've heard lots of before, Joe Retornas, is the winner out of Italy. So the gold medal game goes to Scotland, the silver to Sweden, and the bronze to Italy. Surprise would be Switzerland, who did not show up in the final four for either men's or women's, but uh, I'm sure that will change by the time we get to uh, the Olympics. What do you think of all that, Kevin? Well, that is a shock, and congratulations to Italy. I think that's a that's a big deal to get on the podium, and but a shocker to not have uh, either Swiss team um, get into the uh, final four. That That's amazing. So, yeah, that'll put a little bit of a uh, scare into the into Switzerland because uh, you know they've got to right the ship pretty quick before uh, before Beijing. Bruce Mode is going to be able to run for prime minister, man. <laughs> In that country, this guy's this guy's unreal. Uh, that is what's happening around the curling world. We do it each and every week to bring you guys up to date and get Kevin and Warren's comments on that. And we want to thank Sports Interaction for sponsoring that. Hot Rock Topics is brought to you by Coyote Tractor, proud partner of Team Brad Jacobs and what a week he had, uh, and also of the Grand Slam of Curling. Coyote, we dig dirt. Uh, this is the U.S. Curling Trials played around Robin, where the top two teams qualified for the playoff, which is a best of three. A number of listeners have sent us a note thinking this is a pretty good way of determining a winner and why doesn't Curling Canada try the same thing. Warren, you worked for Curling Canada for 140 years. <laughs> uh, and you, you worked on and looked at a bunch of different uh, playoff systems. What are your thoughts? Well, this is an interesting one because this, to a very large degree, is a television situation and it's a crowd situation. But let's look at what happened in the U.S. as to probably why that took place. We need to remember two things. First, the U.S. Olympic trials are pretty much run and directed by the United States Olympic Committee. And they are a huge partner with NBC. And NBC is a televising network for the Olympic trials. So I can see with the clout of the USOC with NBC that they could convince them to run a playoff that was a best of three for the sport of curling, where third game... Uh, actually happening is uh, not realistically able to be totally planned for. It's got to be assumed that there will be a third game. So you've got to book out the time on the network. You've got to put in commercial inventory. And if something happens that that's gone, all of a sudden they've got to fill that with something. And who knows what, there's a lot of revenue lost. Big sports like hockey, football, uh, in the NFL, NHL, they've got so much power. They, they, they're able to swing that, uh, that ax and make it work. But Here in Canada, the sport of curling that does very well still doesn't have that kind of clout with the networks because there isn't the same kind of revenue involved. 
So I'm quite sure to convince television in Canada to go with a best of three final for any competition would be difficult to do because of the factors I have just mentioned. It would also maybe be difficult to do in the building because, again, you've got to sell the ticket and then it might not happen. And again, curling is big, it's strong, but it's not strong enough to probably be able to do that. But from a point of view of that type of playoff, I, I think it's pretty fair. They had a 16 double round robin. And I think with a 16 double round robin, by the time you've gone through that, it shouldn't go deeper than the top two teams. I think that's fair. The top two teams going into a best of three playoff, I, I don't think there's anything much fairer than that. And to some degree, we take a look again at Canada, we mentioned earlier that on the women's side, there was a bit of imbalance. Fleury hadn't lost a game. Jones lost three. In, in the third place, uh, they had lost, McCarville had lost four. And all of a sudden, you're going against a team that hasn't lost in a sudden death situation. And I guess to some degree, you got to say what sort of fairness is involved. But on the other side of the coin, I understand it because it's a very difficult thing to do under the circumstances that exist in Canada. Kevin, your thoughts? Yeah, no, the best of three in the States, like, so I just did it with, uh, with NBC in Omaha, actually. And uh, on, the, on the women's side, of course, it did go to three games. So no, you know, no, no problem. Or with the men's game, I'm sorry, went to three games. On Tabitha Peterson, of course, just too strong. Uh, and we ended up having a, we did a show, a second show on the Sunday um, and basically showed some of the mixed doubles final and then showed a replay condensed replay of the women's final and then pete fence and myself and jason knapp we were actually coming into the show and doing parts and that's that's how we ended up filling that airtime so you're right warren it's not easy for for the station to do that but boy i sure from a curler's point of view and trying to get the best team you know obviously best of three best of five best of seven is a great idea but you're right, it's not easy for the uh, Curling Association for the, and for the broadcast to, to make it happen. And, uh, but I'll tell you what, that third game in the men's, uh, Schuster against Dropkin, oh, it was incredible. Tied 1-1, Dropkin won the first one, probably should have won the second. The fans were excited and they're on their feet. It was really, really exciting. The third game was really compelling. Uh, entertainment, but understood that if you win your first two, in the case of Tabitha Peterson, there isn't a third game. So it's not a perfect world either. And it's just kind of a matter of deciding mm -hmm. how to go forward. How, how do they do best of three then, Warren? Do they do it like a morning, afternoon, and then evening draw, you guys? Well, if, if the, it goes three games? In the U.S., I think it was over uh, two days, right, Kevin? Yes, it was over uh, three days, actually. Yes, three days. So so it it, it took a while. Uh, two games a day, though, so, so the women went separate from the men. So each broadcast show was about three and a half hours. So we had about six, six and a half, close to seven hours to fill, um, which is no problem with two curling games, 10 in games. But in the case of somebody winning in two games straight, which Tabitha did, you're right, it's, it's, it's not a perfect scenario because you do have the television time blocked off. So you're right, Warren, and it's just kind of a matter of, but boy, I'll tell you, that men's game was so exciting being a third game and both teams were neck and neck and you had the the underdog dropkin against the old favorite going for his fifth olympics schuster and it was quite the story to tell it was it was, it was wonderful to be part of from a broadcast situation but you're right you are risking you know the games not existing so interesting i think what a lot of our listeners need to remember as well and i see this on our facebook group the comments uh, with regard well the nhl and the nfl they do this i think we have to remember that curling does very well in Canada, but in the big scheme of things, don't have a huge financial clout. And all this stuff always comes down to, to money. And uh, we've got to kind of tippy-toe around what's able to be done reasonably and what can't be. And hopefully, as we grow and all this stuff becomes more valuable, that possibly these kind of adjustments may be able to con be considered. Maybe they are now, but I think it's, again, a topic of uh, discussion with those who are in control of making these things happen. This topic and many more uh, fall under our segment of Hot Rock Topics. Uh, very good, boys. And thanks a lot to Coyote Tractor for bringing us that. Nestle Boost is part of our show, and they bring us the mailbag segment. Brought to you by Boost. Up your nutrition game with Boost. Convenient meal replacement drinks with a taste you're guaranteed to love. Thanks a lot to Nestle Boost. Uh, pulling a letter out of the mailbag. Here we go. I've been listening along to the rule change discussions on your podcast and cannot remember if the following has been talked about or not. 
My ladies team and I have a suggestion to make ends more interesting for viewers while reducing the number of blank ends in our game. Our suggestion, a rock that is covering the pin becomes worth two points. She says, hear me out on this. If a team has the option to throw a rock through the house for the blank, they now have an option to throw a draw to the pin for two points while risking only getting one point. I think it would make many ripples in the strategy of each end and could be very interesting. Might be fun. Uh, might be a fun rule to discuss on our podcast. They want your thoughts. That's from Bailey. Uh, she is the lead for Team Stixma in Alberta. Uh, Warren, what do you think? Well, interesting. Back in the old days when we formed the first Players Association group, uh, the, the Super Leagues were part of that. This was actually a rule that was used. There was two things done. If you blanked an end, you lost the hammer in the next end. And if you could cover the pin in any end, it was worth two points. And it had some interesting outcomes. I can remember playing in a game, I think we were up three, playing eight, and the guy covered the pin on us in eight, and he covered the pin again in <laughs> ten, and we actually we lost the game. And, and, and so I, I, I remember that well. And so it was, it was very different approach to life. And there was actually two events played back in the day that was a Western Canada Championship uh, that was part of the Players Association. It's actually sponsored by Carling O'Keefe Brewery. And it was Alberta, Saskatchewan, Manitoba, and BC. And there was actually two teams from each province that participated in this thing. And you played as a unit. And uh, those rules were actually used for that, e that event as well. That event happened for two consecutive years. And then as that original Players Association started to fade, uh, so did that event. And it's interesting enough, um, this rule was part of, of all this stuff for about five years. Uh, Canadian Curling Association kind of looked at it, but it never got beyond that. But it, it created some different situations. And I don't know, interesting to hear Kevin's thoughts on it, but it, it, it did prove that you could do some things differently and maybe make it a little more exciting. I don't know. I don't know either. You know, one thing just automatically makes me think, you'd want to clog up the middle. Because uh, the last draw, especially on great ice like we have most of the time now, the skip can draw that buttonhole phew, quite often, you know, so you get that extra points so would be really important to plug up the middle. So if you could do, I guess, make the button worth two points and get rid of the tick zone, because otherwise it's going to cause more ticks. Because center guard, you're always going to be ticking off center so that your skip can draw the buttonhole in the last for two points. So that's kind of an automatic. So if you get rid and have the no tick, then all of a sudden you clog up the middle on purpose and, and hopefully get one of your rocks onto the button and steal too. Very interesting. Like, but it would definitely, no question, it would change your strategy, certainly, and would cause, if the ticks are allowed, you'd, you'd, you'd automatically tick it every time because you don't want that button to be covered so that your skip can draw the button for two points on the last one. So that's kind of an automatic that I think would occur. I just don't know if it's a bad thing or not, but if we can get rid of the ticks anyway, which is probably after this trials, the men's uh, trials final, and even just to trials in general, there were so many ticks played early in games, middle of games, end of games all the time. It's probably something that needs to happen anyway, becoming more and more apparent uh, all the time. So it's kind of an interesting though, two points for the button. If you can clog up the middle, boy, it could be exciting. Well, maybe clogging up the middle, which goes back to the mixed doubles approach that uh, I used when we invented that game, was forcing play to the middle is how you are going to get multiple ends built. So maybe there is something there. Who knows? There's always this talk about changing rules. We do it a lot, but I, I watched both the men's and women's final this week, and I thought it was great. I thought it was great. You know, they both went, you know, full game, extra ends. It was really good. So I'm like, I, they don't need to change many. And then the only thing that, that I thought they should have is when, and you've mentioned this before, Warren, I buy tickets to go watch the, the Cooey game against Jacobs. And, and then they pull the pin after six ends. And I'm going, well, that's, that's kind of a ripoff. <laughs> I, I, I got to go home in an hour yeah. uh, or, or so. And, and that makes me think they got to change some rules. But those games this weekend, I found the women's game was pretty exciting because there was shots missed. It was going back and forth. But there weren't many shots missed in the men's game. It was pretty predictable. What was going? It was to some degree. It was boring compared to the women's game. So that was my take. That, on it, I so. think that has a lot to do with ice conditions, though. When you've got ice that you can't draw, or or you're scared yeah, that's to true. draw, 
um, against three or four because you could miss. And during the week, you know, Brad Gushu missed a big draw a couple of times. Uh, Brad Jacobs, uh, Kevin Cooey, Brendan Botcher on the men's side, they all missed really important draws. All of a sudden, you get a little bit uh, you know, shy of having to draw against three or four. So instead, you dumb it down, you play more defensively. So, you know, one thing we have to keep in mind before we start, you know, changing too much is ice conditions also uh, make the strategy for a curling game. And in a big final, you know, I don't think either skip wanted to draw against a whole bunch. And even the one time when Jacobs should have, well, normally would have drawn, I shouldn't say should have, he made the hit and roll. Hit and roll is a hard shot but he elected to do that versus drawing the eight foot. So that tells a lot right there. So, you know, I think a lot of times ice conditions will, will kind of tell you what you have to do strategy wise, but you're right. Both of you guys, my goodness, the women's game was exciting. It was awesome. Maybe we should also mention uh, rocks need to be a consideration here as well as ice. And maybe that was more rocks than ice. Uh, There's no question. Had the best, one of the best, I shouldn't say the best, I always exaggerate these things, but certainly <laughs> one of the best ice makers in the world, Greg Owasco is fantastic. And uh, I know he wouldn't be happy with the conditions that he gave the players, but you're right. When you have that guy kind of ice maker, there's something else at play. It's not going to be him that's causing the trouble. So what, what was it? And that would be really important to find out. And, you know, obviously I'll be asking the curlers as we see them over the next month, uh, what their thoughts are, because, you know, it'd be better to have, uh, more predictable draw surface for sure we heard on more than one occasion it's you bring that up kevin when jacobs you know when they said here's the obvious shot and he said he got him on mic saying i don't know what's going to happen on that path i don't know so i'm not firing that you know and uh, it happened a couple of times so which obviously has a lot to do with ice conditions so okay boys that was uh in the bag in the mailbag uh, brought to you by nestle blues we really appreciate those guys So thanks a lot, and keep sending us your emails, insidecurling at gmail.com. Well, it's that time. I love this part of the show where we have a guest. I have history with this guest. I'll tell you about in a second. And In the House is brought to you by Goldline. Goldline curling equipment can be found in pro shops and curling stores all around the world, plus our retail stores in Calgary, London, Scarborough, Mississauga, and two stores in Ottawa. Goldline can be found at every Grand Slam of curling event and online anytime, of course, at goldlinecurling.com. Our guest is Joan McCusker. I think she's at the door. I hope it's not a sales guy. Yeah, of course, it's Joan. Joan, come on in. How are you doing, Joan McCusker? Jimmy, long time, no see. Uh, yes. Love being on the show. I'm a big fan. I listen to every podcast, so I'm so excited to be on. Well, you and I have history uh, over all those years because you were one of the loyal patch attendees every night, okay? <laughs> and Joan would come in. You and Mike Harris, okay? You two would come in. But, you know, it was unfortunate, uh, Joan, because you could only stay three or four hours and then you had to go all the time, you know, so. (laughs) (laughs) Good try. Do not let me in with Mike Harris. Come on. (laughs) I was not there every night. (laughs) Uh, No, Mike Harris was, though, for sure. Um, Joan, this is uh, fantastic to have you on. Um, Boy, uh, what you've done in curling is fantastic. Uh, You played second for Sandra Schmirler. Uh, You won three women's uh, world championships. Uh, you captured the first ever Olympic gold medal at uh, Nagano in 1998. Uh, you're also a coach this week at the Olympic trials in Saskatoon for Team Scheidegger. So we want to talk to you about a bunch of things and, and certainly that relationship you had with the great Sandra Schmirler and all the success, of course, your coaching duties. Uh, you've done so much, Joan, since you retired. Um, when you guys won that, I mean, you go down in history, you know, for doing one of the greatest things ever in Canadian sports. Talk about that for a sec, Joan, and then we'll bring in Kevin and Warren, that first Olympic gold. It was just such a life changer. It, uh, you know, as my generation grew up, Olympics wasn't on the horizon. It wasn't something that curlers would aspire to be part of. So 
it was very late in in the process of that that curling was added as a full metal sport. I think it was somewhere around ninety five. So it wasn't it wasn't something until very late in our career that we said, "Hey, uh, we've done a lot. We'd already won a couple of uh, Canadians and Worlds at that point, and here's this this next thing that's that's on the horizon." And uh, really gave us a target to uh, to train for. So it was kind of like the original quadrennial that when we had that opportunity to get a berth in the very first Olympic trials, it really meant a lot to our team because we were all trying to start families or expand our families. And uh, we thought, hey, here's a chance we can get to the trials and we can have our, our babies and come back and continue to curl, which at that point in time was really unheard of, that you would have small children and continue the level of play that was required to win a Canadians. And so, you know, when I think back how crazy that was at the trials and that Sandra had just had a baby. She had had a baby by cesarean section eight weeks before the beginning of that trials. That's, that's just amazing that she was able to play. And so we took, we looked at those Olympic trials as we were the underdogs because we had a very fragile skip and with a newborn in her room. <laughs> and every day was a gift. It really was that she was able to be ready to play and we supported it in that way. And we knew that we could trust our experiences and our all our years of practice to come back and help us out. And that's what exactly what happened. We ended up in that final, and uh, it was it wasn't pretty. <laughs> it was not pretty. That final <laughs> didn't play our best. Uh, but that very famous shot to get three in the seventh end, the in off catapulted us to a lead that uh, Shannon Clybrink just could not come back from. And and the rest is history. It's uh, you know, all of you that curl know you need a little little luck along the way. You need a few breaks and you need a lot of practice. And I think we had all of those things. Yeah, what, I, certainly what made Sandra remarkable is that story you just told about the Olympics and the high drama from it. And then, as everyone knows, um, you know, Sandra got sick. Uh, and what made her more remarkable, in my mind, in many people's minds, is her attitude towards that, uh, which seemed just, she was so positive still about everything and yet was in in terrible health um that must have been that that must have been sort of crazy times for you guys to handle that uh joan um I, i can't imagine going through that certainly as a friend or a teammate i think in those kind of situations uh whether it's high pressure curling or high pressure life which is what cancer did to to sandra her true personality came out in both of those situations your core values come out and that's what everybody loves Sandra because that's exactly who she was she did not pretend to be anybody else she was very very caring she was true to her roots and she did not think she was anything better than anybody else and so if she could share her cancer journey to help other people find strength then that's what she did that's that's the true Sandra the rest of Canada got to see a little glimpse of of what we were privileged to, to see for for 10 or 15 years. So uh, very lucky to have had that experience with Sandra. Kevin? Well, Joan, hey, thanks for coming on the show. I really, uh, I really appreciate it. Um, you know, obviously with, uh, with the trials being just completed, I'd sure love to hear your thoughts on, on what these players are going to go through, especially Jocelyn. It's her visit, Brett Glant and Jeff Walker, uh, Jocelyn Peterman. Those are the three newbies to the, to the Olympics out of this group. I guess the Olympic stage, what, what's going to happen to them next? Because that's, that's the thing that I think athletes aren't, aren't ready for is, is the next part. This winning the trials is absolutely massive to a person's life, but then <laughs> here we go. That's right. You're absolutely right. The benefit for them is that they've got teammates that have gone through that roller coaster, and it is a roller coaster. There'll be highs, and there'll be really big lows in the next number of weeks. It's not all bonus. It's all not all this glorious life experience. <laughs> I wish it was. I wish I could tell you that it's just like, oh my God, there's never... It's not. There's a lot of, lot of downtime. There's a lot of 
uh, exposure to your to who you are, like you're, you become very vulnerable to the rest of the world as they dig up all these little facts about your life. <laughs> so the good news for the, the newbies is that they're surrounded by people that have gone through it before and, and should be able to prepare them, brace them for those, those highs and those lows. And I'm sure at this point, they've already started to work with sports psychologists and already have that, that circle of, of people, their inner circle of safe people that they can confide in and help them um, block out the distractions. That's what Olympics is. It's just this great big media circus. And if you can get people around you to help you, block it out so that you can just focus on the team and what you personally need to do, then that transition will be seamless. So w with that, what do you mean by that exactly? So in our case, I don't know what how you guys did it when you guys went, but it was really important to try to, oh boy, schedule, I suppose is a good word for media. Because all of a sudden they all have your phone numbers. Yep. How they get it, I don't know. But every media person in Canada and a pile of them around the world, all of a sudden have your personal email and your personal phone number and your cell. I don't know how they get it all, but they do. So then how do you organize that? I know it was really important. Like I, I basically shut my cell off for yeah. most of two months uh, and tried to hide and then just book once every, I don't know, week or, or 10 days, a press conference. And then and that's the right. way we did it. How did you do it? How, like, how, how do you, how do you, I guess for advice for these two teams, how do you think they should do it? Well, it's interesting that you should say that, Kevin, because we we were the test pilot, right? We were fed to the wolves. We we actually there was no barrier between us and the media, and it got to the point that we were we were crying to the Curling Canada, please, 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 help us uh, get somebody to block the people from from coming to our practices and coming to our houses. We we couldn't even practice. Going to the curling rink was a gong show because there was too many media people. So we had asked them for an intermediary, like to, to come between you and, and the media. That was so important going forward. And they did take some of that advice. Think of how bad it would have been had we not said to them, you got to fix this. And I think for everybody, it'll be a little bit different. As you know, the skip in the, in the Olympic media circus, it's almost like they don't recognize anybody but the skip. They won't let you defer to other team members. And that becomes a problem for the skip. Uh, of these teams. And fortunately for these two teams, they've been there before. They know exactly how to handle this. They have people in place likely. For the newbies, the, the people in the middle of these teams, it'll be less, it'll be a less demand for their time as it will be for your skip. But that's what, what happens for these, uh, for these teams. They start to worry about their skips and, and them getting worn out and how can we help them. And how can, how can we help manage their time? Like you were just talking about that schedule, super, super important. And then to try to, to continue to get people in place to protect all of that personal information. Warren? Great. Hey, uh, Warren, if you want oh. to add something to the trials Olympics, go ahead. Yeah, I first want to uh, maybe go on that topic for a bit and then maybe back to Sandra, a couple of interesting things I think there. I, I guess as I look at things, Joan, you won in 1998, it's now going to be 2022 Olympics. Yep. Quite a span. What do you see maybe different now from what it was when you won? You're around these curlers a lot. You're a broadcaster. You know what's going on. What's different now from, from a Canadian's point of view than it was in 1998? With the Olympic trials and the Olympic itself, the whole world competition stage, how do you see it being now as compared to 1998? It's interesting because there's some things that, that'll never change. Um, I know Jan Betker and I were texting about being in the, the arena for this trials, like walking in, Jan was there uh, with her family watching at the Sastel Center in Saskatoon at these trials. And she says, oh my God, all, of my, all the memories came flooding back about playing in front of a crowd for a really big event that every game matters. That part has never changed. The Olympic trials is still the biggest and best event to be part of the what the teams do to prepare for that olympic trials and how many support people they have in place has completely changed <laughs> since we were there uh you know 24 years ago 
you know, the number of teams that have their sports psychologists with them, that have a massage therapist, a chiropractor, a full-time personal coach, access to Team Canadian Curling Association resources, the number of support people around these teams, all like that is a big, big, big change from 24 years ago. You're talking about the the Olympic experience. There has the rest of the world improved. Of course, they have, right? Like that. That has been happening on the women's side for for many years. Is is the rest of the world has dedicated resources to teams to go to improve and become international superstars. And so the competition is just so much deeper when you get to the Olympics. And for the men, that has just started to happen in the last couple of Olympics that the the depth and skill of that men's uh, field has also become come so much stronger so that representing Canada is no longer an automatic medal in curling and the sooner we get that message out the better (laughs) for our athletes it's not an automatic medal for curling like it used to be you could say, well, we got a really good shot of getting some color of metal. And that is not the case any longer. So I think that we have to take that with a grain of salt. And I think we have to take a look at how we're preparing our teams and declaring our teams for that international play more than ever. Yeah, I think Canada needs to do uh, an evaluation of where they are, what's happening, what they've gotten, and where to go from here. Because I I think there's a lot of gray out there. Uh, What's your thoughts on that? Well, I think we need to to find a way to get our our teams a professional status so that they can put in as much time as the rest of, of the world is. So if there's some way that we can streamline to the, those top teams earlier and give them enough funding that they can just curl and not work and then have the Olympic trials, that would be amazing. That would be incredible. I'm not sure where that money would come from for them to get that professional status so early. But I think the only way we compete with with these other teams is getting our teams to that professional level much earlier than a couple of months before they go to the Olympics. Yeah, it should be interesting. So let's get back to Sandra for for a moment. There's uh, two or three things that really stand out in my mind when I think of Sandra. The one that always will be in my, my mind that few people probably really realize that after you guys won that gold medal in uh, Nagano, you came back to Regina, and not did you come home to Regina to a home welcome, <laughs> you came home to the Scottish Tournament of Hearts that you were playing in. Yeah. And it was one of the most amazing things that I think I've ever witnessed. The day that you guys got back, I think like you're back Thursday, and the opening ceremony was Saturday, and you marched into the re- arena in Regina. It was absolutely packed, and I don't know about you, but I can still hear the noise that was in that building. Do you remember that quite well? <laughs> yes, <laughs> in a word. Uh, we felt like we we had made this great sacrifice for the Scotties, uh, for our hometown committee, to come back early from the Olympics to take part in that Scotties. We felt like we took away from our Olympic experience to come back. We did not want to curl. I'm going to tell you that. I I could have paid someone a lot of money to play in my place because <laughs> I was so tired. So, And I had two little kids. I had a five-year-old and a one-year-old that hadn't seen their mother for a long, long time. So that whole you know, experience of what will you do for your, for your country and what will you do for your province came into play. And we had to leave the babies again and go to the rink. So to be greeted that way with like 7,000 people on their, their feet, a standing ovation that lasted forever. It was almost like a, a reward for that sacrifice. It was a, oh, <laughs> you really wanted to see us. <laughs> you really, really, really wanted to see us. And the, the way they would line up to try to get autographs before games and after games and it was just that celebrity that you thought you wanted. <laughs> like we were just such superstars in that moment and tried so hard to be grateful for it. It was just an amazing welcoming and that message back to us about how important this was for women's curling, for our province and for for the Scotties, for us to be there. 
but it was uh it was also again riding that roller coaster it was super high and it was really really hard to be there because <laughs> we were so tired so well i'll never forget it i'll never forget the way that the the fans treated us yeah it was a great moment in canadian curling history that uh, kind of slipped by a few people but i think again to sandra the last few months of her life i, I remember two things in particular we were doing the juniors in Moncton, and she was at that point in time working with CBC part-time as, as a color commentator. And she'd been sick for a few months, and all of a sudden decided she was going to go into Moncton to uh, to actually work that, that, <laughs> yeah. that final. Yeah. And uh, when she got there, uh, there was a decision made that she was going to actually do a television interview. And... Uh, I got to be able to pierce person that uh, introduced her to the to the audience when she went on the talk. I can still remember her uh, her her speech was at that point in time was just fabulous under her condition. And then the last one that really stuck out in my mind is uh, the Scottish term of hearts that year in Prince George, and this was only about three days before her death. And she wrote a letter to the players at the closing dinner that Vic Router read, and it was so well written. But the one thing I always remember she said in that letter to all the curlers. Remember, the curling is only a game. And uh, I think that's something that stuck with me forever. Yeah, it was one of our, one of our philosophies, one of our values was that uh, family came first, then curling. And we had to review that a lot, you know, through the years. And it, it, was, a, it was something that we really shared. And what, you know, drove her to be so strong at the end, I think, was to teach other people it's okay it's okay to curl, be competitive, be crazy, you know, into this game and want to win. And it's okay to, to walk away and, and be part of your family. Like, it was just almost like a message to all those young women that were there with future families and, and how to balance it all. Well, no, you know what? I'd like to get you talking about a little bit. Um, after you retired, Joan, uh, getting into broadcasting, you've been doing it now for, I don't know how long, uh, quite some time. I guess, uh, how, how did you do that transition? How did it work? How did you end up transferring from curling into, into broadcast? And when did you start? How many years have you been doing it? We, uh, my very first broadcast was the juniors in 2001, where we watched Suzanne Goody beat Stephanie Lawton in the final and we watched Brad Gushu beat Mike McEwen if you can imagine in uh, 2001 Mike Harris and I were, were brought on for that particular season and and remember Sandra was working for CBC one year prior and they were grooming her to be the next uh, to be part of that that broadcast and so when she died there was a you know definitely a, a vacancy and and when they phoned to to say that they were going to make a change and that Don Duguid was was no longer going to be the broadcaster and they were looking for a male and a female when would I audition audition for this job I said no <laughs> I said <laughs> I had been doing some broadcasting in, in just cable Regina in our Super League and having a lot of fun with it and somebody had sent in that tape and they said hey, hey listen to this girl she she's uh, she's pretty good at this broadcasting thing and the reason I said no is because it was Sandra had had died six months before, and it, it seemed wrong that I would I would come in after after my own teammate's job, and so <laughs> I remember it was Denny Lavoie and Don Whitman that were trying to get me to audition, and he said, "Think about it. I'm going to call you back in a couple of days." And so I went to my club curling game that night with Jan and Marcy. <laughs> And I told them what happened, and I said, and just so you know, I said no, because this is just too weird. Jan looked over and she said, don't be stupid. Do not be stupid. You've got to audition for this job. Sandra would be so mad if you did not take advantage of this opportunity. And uh, that's how I got into it. But, you know, the reality is I was still playing, trying to get to the next trials. And the deal that Mike Harris and I both had with CBC at that time was that we would curl first, broadcast second. So if we were in events and in those semifinals and finals that the CBC did, we would be excused from the booth, of course, to continue to play. We were playing first. So that's how it all kind of came to be. At that point in time, Kevin, I would say the, the commitment was less. We did less games. So it wasn't as hard as what we do at Sportsnet when we do 11 shows in four days we would do two right two shows so it was very different workload as well 
So that's that's how the transition happened. Joan, you brought up a name, and I, I didn't mean to talk about this today, but you brought up a legendary broadcast name of Don Whitman. And I never had the opportunity to work with Don Whitman, unfortunately. But that that man is a, a, a monster in this in this uh, broadcasting world. Uh, what was he like to to broadcast with? I, I I just never had the opportunity, but that's a name that's uh, legendary. I'll be forever grateful for him. <laughs> In that first weekend of the juniors, and Mike and I were shaking so bad that our our microphones were shaking, <laughs> our hands were were so shaky, and he he just looked over and uh, he said, "Just follow along." He said, "I'll I got you. I I will ask you questions. Just answer my questions, and I will help you. Don't worry." He was a legend. He was a traditional broadcaster that taught us a lot of traditional rules and and values of sport broadcasting listen to the microphones listen to the players uh respond to what they say but make sure that the players are the stars mike and i will laugh about this but he was always like don't try to be funny nobody will laugh at you don't try to be funny which is help <laughs> there you go jimmy there's a lesson no, for what you the hell? okay i'm done i'm toast i'm toast <laughs> oh man but he used to like Give us hack after games about you two are trying to be funny and nobody understands what you're laughing about. Uh, And don't assume that your audience knows as much curling as you do. You need to break it down into real basics. This is your job. Your job is to give your opinion. You know, don't don't, uh, walk a party line. Your job is to say what you think. So say what you think. He taught us about timing. And you'll know that, Kevin, that when to talk and when not to talk, when to let your play-by-play guy carry it through to the end, when to interject with analysis. He was the best. He just was the best and a pretty decent human being on top of that. Really, really good to us, like an uncle uh, taking care of us uh, through the broadcasting world. And he was funny. He was really funny. (laughs) He's not allowed to be funny. Yeah, apparently not. <laughs> and he was such a huge supporter of curling. I mean, Don Whitman loved curling. He yes. grew up with it. He, he went back to the sport. The original broadcasts in 1965, Don Whitman was part of it. He was then replaced by Don Cherry for a number of years, but he went back that far, and he, he loved curling. Well, and he could appreciate uh, practical jokes. He was, a, he was a practical joker, and so was I. <laughs> for my team so there there was a lot of there's a lot of stories of of gags that uh that don set up again not on the air you're not gonna be funny on the air but afterwards and the the things that he did it was hilarious hey joan i want to uh, just expand on broadcast a little bit and uh i think the first time ever uh recently uh you did a show with jennifer jones in the booth too female analysts is I, I think that might be the first time your thoughts on uh, how this wonderful sport at least through Sportsnet, is uh, is changing the face of curling maybe a little bit oh kevin that was a dream come true for me it was to not <laughs> no offense i i do love you and mike and we do have you know we do Thanks. a good job in the broadcast <laughs> oh, give it to him <laughs> give it to him <laughs> but uh it's been about six years that i have been pushing for two women calling women's curling. It's a different game. It's different strategy based on the fact that we don't have the same kind of strength and the same kind of play as the men's play. So I, I've been pushing this for a long time, uh, wondering when we could put two women together and see if we could get more insight into the different strategy and into the different kinds of play. So I was delighted this year when Sportsnet responded to that request saying, let's try it and, and try to bring a player into the booth a couple of times, somebody that's in the event and see how that works. And that has been Jennifer Jones. And so I just feel like we've come around a full circle. It was great to work with Jennifer. She traveled with my team years ago when she was the Canadian junior champ and we were the women's uh, champion. And we got to know that team very well a long time ago. And it was really wonderful to have two women in the booth calling a women's game. I think it's time that uh, other sports have recognized that this is that this is something that needs to happen. And I was thrilled to be part of something that Sportsnet made happen for me. Uh, you're coaching now, Joan. Uh, how, how do you find it? What's what's tough about it? What's fun? What's what's unique uh, about it? Because it's certainly part of the curling world now is, is coaching. Talk about that. 
Oh, I, I absolutely love coaching. In the past, it's been hard to give it 100% of me because I'm spread pretty thin in my life. Mm-hmm. I've got, you know, daughters that play youth sports, basketball, and I and I broadcast and I teach and I, 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 I spread myself pretty thin. So to commit to a team full time, this is probably the first time that I've had enough going on that I could say I'm here for you as much as possible. I've coached in the past, international teams in Switzerland. I've coached in Saskatchewan before, but again, kind of on a part-time basis. Jumping on with Team Scheidegger about two years ago, seeing there was an opportunity in terms of a team that I thought had a lot of skill, has every shot available, didn't have a coach, and could benefit from that fifth, that different perspective that I could bring, what it looks like from the outside and uh, a team that I share values with. They're all family people. They're small town prairie girls. And uh, I have absolutely loved working with this team. Their growth is amazing from where they were to where they are. Uh, they, They suffered from not being able to play during the COVID shutdown. These teams that weren't in the bubble and had no opportunity to play in arena settings were set back. It took us a while to figure out how to play on arena ice again. But boy, oh boy, if we if that event had another couple days, <laughs> I think we could have got our girls a lot farther down the road. That's how much they learned and how much they grew and were committed to learning from their mistakes. So that was just a joy, an absolute joy to be part of. And just like my team, just like Sandra, they have terrific values they're such good people to each other and to their to their young babies at home and have that support system it's just been a pleasure to be part of that team my god you're the most positive person in the world <laughs> you know why i bring that up right because we work with kevin right kevin can be very <laughs> down right uh, what what's it like working with martin anyway you know we we suffer through it here what, <laughs> what's it like in the booth with him Oh, you know, we have a, our Sportsnet crew is a, a wonderful team and, we, you know, we have so much fun and uh, we all get to know each other. So one of Kevin's things is we have to find Starbucks on the way to the arena, oh, there we go. even if even if it means being late and our producer gets mad at us. So that's one <laughs> of uh, Kevin's things that we have to make sure that Kevin gets his Starbucks. Uh, he's a great guy. You know what? I got to tell you, in the booth, we all bring something different. And, and Kevin's perspective is like no one else's in curling. He knows more about rocks and ice and the shots than all of us, the rest of us all combined. So to tap into that every once in a while <laughs> and enlighten the, the rest of the world is, uh, is, is just really, really a pleasure to be part of. Hey, Joan, I never really get upset, but the day Mike forgot to pick up the coffee. <laughs> that did a little it. testy. I was downright, I was mad at him. <laughs> like, well, you got I, one I, job to do on the way to the ring, Mike. <laughs> I thought I, I thought we had lost Kevin for the whole broadcast because there was no coffee. <laughs> you, may, you may have just got us a new sponsor, Starbucks. They made that. Um, <laughs> Joan, this is uh, this has been great. Thank you. You know, I uh, those of us who have been around uh, to to watch you curl back in the day will never forget uh, that Olympic win. And uh, I've listened to you in the booth, and you're fantastic and really good. Thank God you said yes to that audition. So, congratulations on a great curling career and a post curling career. It's 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 fantastic what you're doing for the game. Thank thanks a million, Joan, for coming on. Well, thanks for having me, guys. It's a real pleasure. Love the show. Keep rolling. Thanks, Joan. Thanks a lot. We'll see you at Provincials. Thanks, Joan. Yeah, that's great. We'll see you soon. <laughs> see you, Joan. See you, guys. Okay, fantastic. Uh, love Joan. How positive she is, Kev. And she must be fun in the booth, Kev. Oh, yeah. Geez. Well, you know, I, I was very lucky when I started that uh, it was Joan and, and Mike both had been in the industry so long and helped me along because like, uh, like Joan says, you're so nervous when you start, your hands are sweating, you're shaking like crazy. <laughs> so it was nice to have her and Mike to settle things down and a uh, true professional, really good with uh, with the players and, and obviously has uh, no lack of things to say. We We got to hear that loud and clear. <laughs> 
boy, I don't know how she does it. She's got kids that she's teaching and she's coaching and she's in the booth and all the other stuff that goes with life. Anyway, she was great. Uh, Thanks a lot to Joan. Story time. Brought to you by Meridian Manufacturing, your industrial and on-farm storage and handling partners and a proud sponsor of the Grand Slam of Curling. A number of listeners have sent in a note and asked, why do some players slide with a delivery that is more or less flat-footed Will some throw in a tuck position? Where did the tuck come from? And who, in fact, discovered the slide delivery? Warren, uh, you're going to give us some history on this. Uh, Curlers originally threw from a mat called a crampet. Uh, When did all that change? How far back are we going here, Warren? A crampet? I've never (laughs) heard for that. (laughs) Lay it on us, man. The the original game was played from this this mat. It was like a doormat with uh, spikes in it that went into the ice, and that's where you stood. And through the rock from that uh, from that standing semi standing position, as time evolved, sort of initially I think it was like a wire made grip was put in the ice as a kind of a foothold. It wasn't very sturdy. And uh, a gentleman in Edmonton by the name of Ole Olson, an inventor in the curling world, brought us a lot of things. But one thing that he brought that has been essential was he brought the rubber hack back in the forties. And the rubber hack was stable enough that people then found themselves comfortable in throwing a shot probably where they would leave the hack a bit. And at that point in time, it wasn't even in the rules. But probably the man who takes responsibility for starting the slide delivery was Ken Watson. And for those of you in Canada, you probably remember who Ken Watson was. The rest of the curling world, he was a gentleman who won three briars in the 30s and 40s and went by the name pretty much of Mr. Curling. He was the first guy who tried to put anything about instruction on paper and develop some ideas. But he's the guy that decided to first start leaving the hack in the delivery. And initially, when the rules were adjusted, you had to let go of the rock by the T-line with this new slide delivery that uh, did change very much into the early 50s. But when he first kicked off the, the toe rubber, probably, and tried to slide, they were wearing a shoe with a leather sole and a rubber heel. And that was what they originally were trying to slide on. And as a result, the rubber heel, you had to get the heel off the ice or it was going to grab. And then as time went on into the early 50s, some of these younger guys, in particular Stan Ostman from Saskatoon, discovered that by getting way up in the toe on this leather sole, you had less resistance and you could slide farther. And that's what they sort of started to do. So during those early days of the slide in the 50s, guys like Matt Baldwin, who actually slid the length of the ice along with uh, with Osman, they got right up in the toe to do that on their, on their leather-soled shoes. So that's sort of where that all started. For some reason in Manitoba, and I'm not sure the history of it, there was a movement afoot to not only get up in the toe, but to get down really low at the same time and tuck the uh, heel right back up to the opposite thigh. And the people that I recall first doing that with success was uh, two guys, Don Duguid and Barry Fry. And whether or not they are the ones who originated the tuck delivery, they're the only ones I know from that era that threw that way. And as a result, uh, that became a, a standard form of, of sliding out of Manitoba. And that's why you still see today a lot of the top players slide that way, but most of them have learned to curl in Manitoba. During the 70s, the whole thing was refined to define that possibly a, a more flat-footed type of delivery that allowed balance and uh, possibly come up towards the toe as you were beginning to release the stone might add you a little more weight control, but that's sort of how it all started and, and where it went from there. The other interesting thing about the crampet, this is a, one of the things we're facing today. That this game was invented to throw a rock from a standing position about 146 to a button, 146 feet to a button. We're now sliding out to the hog line going 1,000 miles an hour, so we've taken that 30 feet off of it. We've aimed ourselves straight at the, at the target, and to some degree, I always say it's like having a golf club and a, and a golf ball that will allow you to drive the ball 400 yards. Uh, that's to some degree what we've, what we've done, and that's part of the reason why we're having, I think, trouble scoring today. Anyway, Kevin, your thoughts on all that? Well, that was, that's interesting. You've tried, you know, for myself as an ice maker, I used to actually throw out of the hack to test the ice after, after you scrape and pebble and have it ready. You'd throw both turns and, and figure it out. And you actually, over time, you get pretty accurate with it. So it'd be kind of interesting to see uh, how well these top players could do off a crampet. <laughs> <laughs> yes. <laughs> be a little bit of a different We should game, have a crampet competition. <laughs> it's like golf, but, golfers hitting persimmon woods. Yeah. But for the people that tuck, uh, there's, uh, you know, obviously, you know, some of the great players have done it. Um, 
but boy, it's hard on your hard on your knee. Um, if you weigh quite a lot, the, the ones, the, the guys that mostly tuck are fairly like uh, Jeff Stoughton, um, not real heavy, Ryan Fry, so on, not real heavy guys. For me with, you know, uh, boy, that would be hard on my knee. That's why I think most curlers have moved over to flat foot or slightly have your heel raised a little wee bit. Um, and the reason being is just for your health, your, your, for your, for your knees, it'd be so hard to get your knee into that position all the time. If, especially if you weighed a fair amount, 200 to 250 pounds. I think as well as sliding substances or materials have, have evolved so much. Uh, I'll date myself, but when I was a kid, this was before Teflon really became on the scene. We actually used to use liquid solder at one point on the sole of your shoe to, to make you be able to slide farther. And you had to keep putting this stuff on all day. It was quite a messy task. Uh, by the time we got into the seventies, uh, other substances besides Teflon were being developed. And I think it was Pat Ryan actually came up with that stainless steel slider that was really, really quick. But the sliders today compared to uh, 50 years ago are lightning fast. And on the surface that the ice is now also very quick, it's, uh, it's very, very uh, slippery, I, I would say, uh, would be the term I would use. You have to solder something on the... What? You need a welder to have on your team, Warren, if you did this. Liquid solder, <laughs> you put it on, and you actually, I remember, you'd stick your, sh- your shoe in a snowbank to cool it off. So it would, fr- it would, fr- it would fr- <laughs> seriously, because you're putting this stuff on between games. This is the old days. <laughs> <laughs> you're killing me. That's, wow. Um, anyway, uh, fantastic. Uh, well done, Warren, as usual, <laughs> giving us some history of the game. Uh, that's great. Inside Curling is reaching out to curling clubs all over the world. If you'd like to do a Zoom call with us, that would be great. Uh, keep in mind we're doing it on a limited basis, but uh, we'd love to get on uh, a Zoom with you and your curling club. Uh, so let us know if you want to do that. We also want to thank Rod Paulson, uh, his company, In-House Strategies. They handle all our Facebook stuff. Uh, if you do want to get a hold of us about anything, uh, insidecurling at gmail.com. Boys, the uh, events keep on coming. The next major world curling event will be taking place in the Netherlands starting December 5th when the final Olympic qualifiers will be held for men's, women's, and mixed doubles. Scotland's Eve Muirhead just won the European Championship, but to get into the Olympics, she'll have to qualify through this event in Holland. Boy, it's getting tougher and tougher. Uh, Well done, boys. Uh, Kevin, you, you, you get to stay at home for a little while, don't you, before you move along again? You betcha, I get to stay home till tomorrow. (laughs) (laughs) Great stuff, boys. Uh, Thanks very much, everyone, for listening and telling all your friends about it. This has been another edition of Inside Curling. Take care, fellas. Thanks, Jim. Hey, thanks, Jimmy. Jimmy.